Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoyed today's SDG Talks podcast. Hello, SDG Talkers. Welcome to another episode of SDG Talks, where I invite on Christopher Moss to talk all things nature-based solutions. Chris is a real stand-up guy. He knows a lot about nature-based solutions, a lot about green infrastructure, and these two concepts are quite similar. You'll find out a bit more in the episode. He actually wrote his thesis on green infrastructure and local planning in the UK. Um, It's obviously a longer title than that, but we don't know to go into the details. This episode, he really talks a bit about the need for collaboration to actually realise the implementation of nature-based solutions they obviously have a cost. Uh, who bears that cost? How can we break down the different silos of society to work together uh, to actually make sure that these solutions can be implemented and maintained? Um, he talks a bit about putting a price on nature, which I find quite interesting. Um, you can hear more about that in the episode. Um, but really just speaks quite positively of the trends that we're seeing, especially in the UK, uh, towards the consideration of the environment and the consideration of biodiversity in uh, the work that we do and that having these schemes that are coming into play uh, is really giving us a foot in the door for uh, developing the truly uh, nature considerate environment that we're looking for. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go, SDG Talks. I'm not sure what sustainable development goal we're talking about today maybe nine maybe 11 kind of intersects a lot of different things but I'm really lucky to have Christopher Moss Chris Moss here who is a nature-based solutions expert currently working at the UK Green Building Council on the nature biodiversity and climate resilience programs Chris first question for you can you explain to me and anyone else who's listening what the hell a nature-based solution actually is um, so thanks, thanks for having me on. Um, nature-based solutions, or NBS, um, really they refer to a whole range of interventions um, within the built environment uh, that sort of utilise natural features and all their processes to provide a range of benefits. Now, these benefits can be environmental, social, um, or economic, um, and they're often referred to as ecosystem benefits, which sort of or ecosystem services which span this broad spectrum. So nature-based solutions explicitly um, at present refer to sustainable urban drainage systems, which are interventions that mimic sort of natural drainage processes while delivering a range of these ecosystem services. Um, Street trees, um, green roofs, green walls, and then sort of parks and green spaces as well. Awesome. So what what makes nature-based solutions so hot right now and why is it something that we've not really been tapping into before the way you present it it makes it sound like it's such an obvious win win so why why has this not always been a thing well i think the increased profile for nbs itself um can be linked obviously the increased profile of the climate emergency and the recognition of the ecological crisis that we're facing globally and the fact that nature-based solutions, as they've been conceptualized and coined, present themselves as a solution to this problem of climate change and the ecological crisis. Um, Mm. We are talking about it, and it is quite new. Um, 
it's novel in its vernacular, but you know, conceptually and practically, it is drawing on um, a long line of urban urban landscape architecture um, principles and practices, which sort of you know arguably began back with Ebenezer Howard and Frederick Olmsted and the Garden Cities movement. Um, we're talking about it because climate change is, is is a hot topic and the the capacity for MBS to provide climate resilience is um is coming to the fore now what separates nature-based solutions from its predecessors um i thought i could take two angles here really um a less cynical line of line of thought would say that they're explicitly more resilience focused to addressing climate change and the ecological crisis, so, you know, they present these explicit solutions um, to these to these grand problems, and that's a you know that's a great way of marketing them to planners, to politicians, to developers, to built environment stakeholders. Um, you know, more cynically, and on the other hand, um, they are the in rhetoric. You know, they're the, they're the hot they're the hot terminology to be using right now, um, which. You know, drawing on the things that I just said, you know, they, they perhaps, you know, the, the argument is they make it more clear. Do they add clarity to what we're talking about? You know, is, is it calling nature based solutions? Is it more clear than referring to it as green infrastructure? Mm. Um, or is it, you know, is it just a park or is it just a green space? I mean, interestingly, there was a survey done uh, across Greater Manchester recently of around 2000 residents. And within that data, they sort of they analysed or they assessed the clarity of the terminology because the terminology and the communication is a, is a clear issue you know it's all about getting getting the message across and nbs and green infrastructure sort of there was, there was no difference between the level of understanding it was sort of basically the same there was a level of understanding um but you know understanding what just green space is and the benefits that it provides was much much higher so it's about sort of you know do you colloquialize it? Do you try and make it more clear? You know, is it more explicit that it's a nature-based solution? You know, mm -hmm. or is it, you know, is it being used um, and sort of propagated, you know, globally at the minute? Um, you know, to, to access these funding pots that are just currently available for this for this new kid on the block, as it were. <laughs> would Would you say that then that this is? Would you say it's a bit of a, a trend that might not live that long, or is it? something that you really see is going to become more and more uh, key for any future development, be it like we're going to build a children's play park and we now need to think about how this could be a nature-based solution or we're going to be building, I can't think of any other good examples, a basketball court. <laughs> it's going to have sponge floor that absorbs the water. Or I, I don't know. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts there? I think... It definitely does, you know, it definitely has longevity. It's definitely being taken up, um, you know, very swiftly, especially in the run-up to COP26 next year. Mm. You know, nature-based solutions are are at the forefront, you know. But, it, you know, it, like I say, it was green infrastructure. And it was green infrastructure from sort of like the early 2000s up until very recently. And, you know, the rationale behind this shift, this transition in terminology you know, it, it's unclear. It's a little bit ambiguous as to why. Um, but the thing, the thing that always strikes me is, does it really matter? You know, mm -hmm. if, if the difference between calling it green infrastructure or nature-based solutions 
is between something happening and something not happening well then you know you call it you call it whatever it needs to be called to have the thing done because in principle they refer mm -hmm. to the same things you know where it gets tricky is when you're referring to nature-based solutions you know, i'm writing a report on nature-based solutions and then i'm referring to green infrastructure interventions within it because the interventions themselves are still classified as green infrastructure so whilst there's this move to make things clearer you know they run the risk of adding these layers of nuance and complexity which actually you know can equate to ambiguity um mm. rather than rather than making things more succinct and more clear um i think it definitely has legs i think it definitely you know it really is i think to be honest thinking about it positively and with the most positive lens you can i think it it has more bite for those stakeholders who are currently less engaged. You know, green infrastructure was very much taken up in policies and strategies in, in local planning authorities across the UK. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them have green infrastructure strategies, which evolved from just biodiversity strategies that were their predecessors. You know, now they're thinking about potentially having nature-based solution strategies. You know, it's, it potentially it potentially taps into that market of built environment stakeholders, built environment professionals. You know, perhaps it makes more sense to a developer or you know, a building owner, occupier or operator that it's a nature based solution. It is a solution to a particular problem that serves this purpose and the connection between it and its climate mitigative capacity or adaptive capacity or its risk management capacity is much more clear. There's a much more clear connection between what it is, what it's for, what it does, why it's important, and why it should be included in, in, um, you know, in the, uh, in the development proposal and process. Yeah, that's really cool. So you would say it's kind of like um, an evolution from uh, you mentioned there. It was biodiversity, then green infrastructure, nature-based solutions. So it's kind of just more layers to to something that was previously and maybe i'm just really uh, of course you've got your phd hat on here so you're obviously really in the in the weeds with it uh but for us so like newbies who are just we don't know anything about it would you say it's just it's just another layer to green infrastructure is that the kind of understanding it is yeah i mean you know my yeah my my, my thesis research is in green infrastructure implementation you know so i'm calling it green infrastructure in my doctoral research you know mm -hmm. prior to that it's you know, it's still referred to as greenway um, in sort of land, landscape architecture in the United States or green wedges or, you know, in the Far East, they refer to it as, as forest cities or sponge cities principles. You know, it's what, what it's called, what it refers to, you know, explicitly, I suppose it, it matters not really because the principles and practices are very much the same. And yeah, I suppose that's why there has been a lot of, there's been a lot of criticism to some extent, especially in the academic community, as to what the added value is of calling it this new thing. But I suppose from my experience within, you know, a different a different environment, you know, in, the, in more in the construction and industry sector now, um, you know, it, it has a great deal more traction, really, with those currently underutilized stakeholders. And, and you mentioned there about um, how green infrastructure was implemented into policy is nbs now something that's really getting positioned in policy and practice and it, maybe you speak more for the uk but if you know from a global perspective as well i think that would be really interesting to understand 
think with the policy environment, it's always slow to adapt. So what's happening is a lot more MBS projects on the ground. So particularly across Europe and as a result of, you know, very, very generous EU funding over the last sort of decade, there are a lot of MBS projects. And then I suppose with them being these pilots, these sort of flagship and leading the vanguard for this new generation of environmental interventions that mitigate, you know, mitigate climate change and, you know, help help deliver health and well-being benefits and make livable and sustainable communities. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I <laughs> you do not sound like solar. The policy landscape is, the policy landscape is catching up. Um, mm. whether, whether they'll explicitly start um, developing nature-based solutions policies, um, it's, an, it's an interesting thought. Um, I know from my understanding of the policy landscape in England that mm. you know, nowhere, is, nowhere is calling it a nature-based solutions policy as of yet. You know whether whether that will change, but you know things that happen in uh, in local government obviously are you know some sometimes playing catch up with these things. Mm-hmm. And and it maybe it is something that that is further ahead in Europe. I mean, I've certainly seen the term branded around a lot more in connection to like the European Green Deal, and um, maybe that there is more advanced thinking there. And yeah, maybe it's just a case of. You know, the UK already has quite strong green infrastructure policy in place, and maybe it's just it'll take time to to catch up there. Um, oh, what what would you what would you say are the challenges facing m- more uh, NBS prominent prominence? Well, um, I suppose they could be divided up into matters of policy and practice, really. Um, you know, one of the crucial things is that there is a lack of awareness and understanding both within and between organisations. And that is, um, you know, across the public and private sector. Whilst, whilst there is this groundswell of action, um, explicit understanding of what it is and what it does is, you know, is still to some extent in its infancy. And there needs to be a greater level of collaboration across sectors. You know, co- collaboration forms of collaborative governance are, you know, are very hot topic. Um, yeah, they're also, you know, the dumb thing that needs to be done. But it's absolutely integral that we gain that that sort of cross sector collaboration um, mm-hmm. more effectively. Um, mm-hmm. From a, from a policy perspective, as you say, that it's still there is established green infrastructure policies, although there are, you know, its uptake and development is still sporadic. Um, so with NBS, you know, does it need to be a new generation of policies or can it still be referred, you know, do the green infrastructure strategies still still mm-hmm. hold their place? Um, you know, in the, my, in all of my research is focused really um, in a UK context, but in the emerging policy landscape with regards to the upcoming environment bill um, and the implications of that on the policy and practice landscape, I mean, biodiversity net gain requirements and broader environmental net gain requirements mm-hmm. are emerging which will put sort of tangible limits and requirements upon every development both residential and commercial to achieve uplift biodiversity net gain will be to achieve a 10 percent increase in biodiversity um mm-hmm. quality and quantity um and environmental net gain sort of incorporates those wider ecosystem service benefits that i mentioned at the beginning to sort mm-hmm. of broaden out the metric and broaden out the benefits that are that are delivered within um, within developments. I mean, the challenges uh, through its implementation is great consideration. You know, 
the simple and straightforward answer is that it's it's an economic question. You know, how do you make these things a viable, uh, not only a viable investment, but a viable revenue stream? So you're looking at the costs and implications both in the short and long term. You know, understanding what we do about the development cycle, it operates in very short cycles. You know, it's design, planning, construction, and it's done. You know, that, that's it. And then the sale or, you know, who's picking up, what contingencies we're having, what long-term plans are we putting in place for these things? And I think that's, that's one of the key areas. You know, we, they talk about it in terms of capital expenditure and operational expenditure, CAPEX and OPEX. And there is still a massive disconnect with regards to nature-based solutions implementation and management. Because, of course, these things, you know, they're living interventions. They're living assets. You know, they need they need um, maintenance and management and upkeep. So who who bears the responsibility for these things, these interventions when they are included? You know, if I include green roofs on all of the houses in, in, a, in a residential development, whose responsibility then is it to upkeep the green roof? Is it at the point of sale? Is it the house owner, the property owner? And then that's, you know, that is a responsibility that they bear. You know, that's one way. But then on commercial buildings where it's a little bit more complex, Whose responsibility is it? Is it the person who built the building? Is it the person who then or then owns the building? Is it the person who occupies the building? Is it the community around the building? Is it their responsibility to chip in and ensure these things are maintained and well managed? Because they have to be well managed to ensure that they still provide the benefits, the ecosystem service benefits that they have the capacity to do. You know, if they fall into disrepair or their quality is reduced, then they they don't have the same sequestration capacity you know they don't have the same capacity to to mitigate flood risk mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what what is what is the answer there or is it is it case by case contextual how well yeah i mean the answer is develop develop the case the economic case for nbs in the short and long term and there is a massive amount of of action research going on um all across the world you know with that with that very aim in mind you know, bridging this gap between capital expenditure and operational expenditure and trying to think of innovative ways of sort of overcoming those barriers and those disconnects and assigning responsibility, whose responsibility is, you know, can you tap into corporate social responsibility remit? You know, is is there stronger policy that could be that could be put in place? You know, the, there is a lot to be said for the role of the local planning authority and central government, certainly in all of this. But if we're to take them aside for a second, you know, what about the role of environmental stewardship? You know, there's a, there's a vast amount of research that says, you know, if you engage communities in, say, the planning and development process and you engage them in consultation and they have a say and they have a stake in these things, then, you know, they can take up some of this ownership and they, you know, they can oversee the management and maintenance. You know, do you, do you collaborate with existing NGOs? You know, do you collaborate with Friends of the Earth groups or, you know, Friends of, friends of Parks groups, for example? You know, these... These pockets of sort of, you know, engagement, they they exist, mm -hmm. but like I say, there is still this disconnect, and this disconnect exists, you know, it exists. It's typically associated within within government and local authorities that everybody works in their own sectors and they have the blinkers on and they don't see anything outside of it, but it exists everywhere. It's, you know, it's 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 a real issue, and it happens even amongst the most you know the most prominent advocate groups. 
you know, because you can't be seen to have all your fingers in every pie at the same time. You can, you know, you can't, we're not omnipotent beings. No, no organization is where it can see into the operations of, of every other organization and see where the crossovers are and see where the opportunities for collaboration are, and see where the repetition or the overlap might be. And I think, you know, as we collaborative working and as and as these organizations become increasingly engaged and and as the stakeholders diversify which they are doing you know it, it we're we are stepping in the right direction all the time we're stepping closer to where we need to be albeit you know it's not happening quickly enough at a global scale it's happening it's happening really swiftly in pockets but it's not mm -hmm. happening quickly enough you know writ large you know it, that 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 presents an opportunity to really to really make some ground you know to to work better together to work smarter not necessarily harder um mm -hmm. and you know over, overcome these these disconnects um mm. that are still present because you know they, they are still present you know you see it you see even at a national scale you know the 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 uneven geographies of all of these things, the uneven geographies of of environmental policy, green infrastructure policy, or where nature-based solutions projects currently are located. You know, there's masses of work going on in London. There's masses of work going on in Greater Manchester. There's masses of work going on in the southwest in Bristol. And it's happening in Bristol because there's a history of community community action. There's a history of environmental action. It's happening in London because you know it's a completely different governance structure. It might as well be a different a different country altogether but it's also happening in, in the northwest because of the legacy of the community forest initiative you know regional development agencies that were set up under new labor in the early 2000s you know they were sort of the vanguard for spatial strategies to do with green infrastructure at the time so it's almost the legacy is still engaged because there are all these organizations that were involved in the inception and the continuation of these things and they're still continuing that good work now but outside of those areas you know, it's, there is still every, you know, every, everywhere. It's not complain catch up, and that's and that's the thing. And I think, you know, there's there's, there's vast opportunities with 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 more collaborative working, and um, you know, trying trying to engage those areas that are currently less engaged. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the and then I suppose the other thing is the million dollar question. Ironically, is you know, how how do you value these things, and how do you make sure how do you make sure they are economically viable? For investors, and those investors can be both public sector and private sector as well. So, Chris, you have such a country. deep, rich knowledge and uh, understanding of all of England and all the different regions and how they, how the governance systems work and how the history has been with different environmental causes. And I love listening to that. That was, that was really, really, really nice. Um, and it really sounds like collaborative working is a big issue here or it should be part of part of the solution and it really makes me think of um like living and working in denmark and it's such a collaborative model there and that's really been founded kind of mostly in their in, in terms of environmental side of things like in the environmental policies where even early earlier on in the 20th century if you were building something if you were doing something you had to hit certain metrics or engage with certain communities there was a lot of participation across different sectors of society I mean, I work for um, a cluster organisation which is bringing together the triple helix of society like academia, business and government. Um, and it's a Danish cluster and that seems to be, you know, part of where the birthplace of clusters is. There's such a strong, strong field over there. And maybe that's something that we could see more of in the UK. Um, 
but I have a question about the economic case and and part of your um, part of your little your speech there about the history of the UK. You were you were talking about um, the economic case needs to be stronger and the yeah, basically making it a, a clearer investment. And when you speak of these types of things, is it only in saying, let's say for example, one of the ecosystem services of nature-based solutions is carbon sequestration, so it could be a carbon sink. So maybe carbon credits could feed into helping to pay for or justify the cost of the nature-based solution. Is that the kind of link there that you're thinking, other than just the fact that costs for development and operation go down as economies of scale are met and um, yeah, innovation drives processes forward? Would it be kind of the carbon angle you're looking at there, or are there other things like water or uh, air quality? I mean, I don't know enough about this landscape. Carbon's the only clear one uh, that I know at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly could be. Um, we're, we're in relation to nature-based solutions, it's not something that's necessarily explored, but the notion of credit and the notion of sort of either buying or selling or trading, you know, it's, 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 it's about creating a market for these things. And um, there, there is a market being created for biodiversity through um, the biodiversity net gain and environmental net gain requirements that I said were, uh, that I mentioned earlier, are coming out um, upon royal assent when the environment bill gets passed. So the, the idea there is, yeah, to link, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work going on about how that will then link, how will these credits link to nature-based solutions intervention? Because if you can't be seen to, if, if say, with a biodiversity net gain requirement, if a developer is required to achieve biodiversity net gain of 10%, um, on a development, but they can't be seen to do it on site, so then they have to do it off site. You know, they then need to they they can then use those credits that they've accrued. Um, it's a very very crude explanation. You know, I'm, I'm not actually, I'm not a technical <laughs> expert on the biodiversity net gain, but they can you know they can they can use these credits, and those credits can then be bought and sold by other developers to implement things off site. So it's overcoming the that sort of um, that, that the negative side of mitigation where it's you know if if it you know if it can't be seen to be done on, right on the site then then it's just then it's then it then it doesn't get done basically it doesn't get considered mm-hmm. i think there is a strong case for um as you all mentioned you know the 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 lifetime saving um the economic case in relation to nature-based solutions you know economic savings over the over the life cycle of a of a building or an asset or a form of infrastructure, you know, there's quite a great deal of evidence now on that. But then the problem remains: um, it's it's who reaps those benefits and who and who gets, you know, who reaps the benefits of those savings across a building's lifetime because it, you know, it might go through multiple owners and it might have, you know, it's we we come back to the issue that is, you know, fundamental with with the build the development cycle where it's, you know it's 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 working too short term and these benefits are much in the longer term. So it's how we can how we can then get these benefits right at the outset. And one of the most innovative things that I'm aware of um, that's happening, and uh, it is that uh, it's happening in uh, Greater Manchester, like a lot like a lot of these things. But it's looking into innovative innovative funding streams um, to do with sustainable urban drainage systems. So. Um, basically, the the project or the 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 idea, the the innovation, is to look at uh, the flood the flood risk management um, and the uh, the capacity of studs to sort of mitigate flood risk and reduce the amount of um, water 
that runs into a municipal drainage system, um, say in a, in a time of, of great downfall. Um, what, what this one project, the ignition project, um, uh, is trying to do or has tried to do is identify uh, buildings and assets that are in, that are publicly owned, so that are owned by the local government. Um, and sort of, it's called, it's called a service, it's called a banding charge model. So basically buildings, um, in, within public ownership, so say like schools, they will pay a banding charge to the utilities owner. In this case, it's United Utilities. They pay an annual banding charge rate for the amount of water that passes through their infrastructure and into the municipal drainage system. So they pay a rate based on that volume. Now, if you can reduce that volume by holding that water within, mm-hmm. you know, within studs, within forms of green infrastructure within these nature-based solutions then you can reduce the the rate that you pay you get put in a different in a different banding charge and you pay less so that can be you know that can be thousands of pounds different basically so let's try to work this out and into a into a scalable and transferable model mm-hmm. um in terms of how you can make these savings and then you see year on year the amount the amount you know the, the, you're making the economic case for it you know, mm-hmm. the, the problem with that this very instant is that you know? In reality, it's very difficult to ensure this because of the role of the utilities provider, the fact that they are still, you know, the the controlling partner within all of this, and you know that, that there are there are obstacles still to overcome with that. But you know, this this project in particular is is looking at applying different or similar similar things in terms of um, green roof applications and green wall applications and things things like that so um i really like that linkage it's just really smart and like the only thing i could see would be tricky is collecting that data aggregating the data and, and making that clear case and, and keeping on top of it i guess um but when you present it like that it, it seems quite obvious you know if you've got 20 schools 10 hospitals or whatever and they're all having these savings collectively you've got tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of pounds that can be used for releasing beavers upstream and <laughs> having a little dam further up the river. Um, yeah, that's really... That's making the case from a, from a savings perspective. And then I suppose, you know... The, the other thing, as you mentioned, you know, if you, if you can establish some sort of market and a credit, then it is then using those things for the, for the implementation of, um, of new interventions, you know, elsewhere. And uh, yeah, it's, again, it's, it, it is just a viability thing, you know, the, the, what makes something viable is uh, obviously an inherently subjective thing, really. Um, mm-hmm. and it, yeah, it's still a work in progress, but you know there is fantastic stuff happening right across the country and elsewhere. What are your thoughts around the um, the biodiversity credits? Because I, I really like that concept. I find it really interesting. And do you think there's potentially the uh, or, or the room for you know errors or mistakes, or where I'm a landowner and I decide to yeah, chop down some forests so that I can then in the future say, oh yeah, I can turn this into a biodiversity space or people who are kind of playing the system, is there quite a lot of, would it be better to have a biodiversity tax or another type of system where every single development has to meet certain criteria or is that just not feasible? Well, I mean, there is, the criteria is being set by the biodiversity net gain principle at its root. That is what it's doing. It's saying that all, all developments will need to achieve uh, a 10% uplift in biodiversity. And you know, the environmental net gain, which is the one that's uh, earlier in its um, development stage, 
is, is broadening out those benefits to include things you know outside of just just playing biodiversity um i think it's one of those things where it is still um it's still early days um and stakeholders are emerging you know brokers for these things because it will need brokers this market needs brokers are emerging um the environment bank is one example of an organization that is offering this brokerage service for biodiversity credits you know where they can be bought sold and traded etc um i think the the danger is that it removes it removes these things further from sort of the the point of impact in the action area and with with all of these things you know they're inherently context specific you know what what makes a nature based solution fun, you know multifunctional or functioning to the highest capacity is you know the very specific context it it's delivered in and if you know if if you can't be if, if it's unclear as to where these things are going and what these things are doing you know that there is a level of uncertainty that still needs ironing out in terms of who is going to regulate this market and who is going to ensure that the credits are just and that they are because you know putting putting a value on nature is it's 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 internalizing the externality sound, you know right? how can That's you not sound right buddy well it doesn't sit right with me frankly you know just to just to take a personal perspective it's it's because you know the uh, the greater london authority valued its natural capital at so yeah, like what uh, like one no 900 oh i'm going to i might get it wrong it's either 950 million or 950 billion across like the entire <laughs> and obviously that's a huge that's a huge difference and uh, i'll need to i'll need to check that one but you know you're talking about valuing these natural assets mm-hmm. um and millions and millions of pounds but then who but then who pays for it and i suppose the thing with these biodiversity credits in this emerging market for biodiversity or the environment more broadly is it's it's a foot in the door and it's a foot in the right direction. I mean, sadly, it's not the direction that at a philosophical, you know, from a philosophical perspective, I believe we should have to do. I don't believe you should have to put a price on nature to make it worthwhile. But, the you know, the fact of the matter is that that's how that's how you're going to make a case for it. And that's, you know, that's it's almost it's saving grace, you know. It, to protect or enhance it or to implement it, it's going to need it's going to need to be of value in the economic system that, that you know that dictates society. So there there are a lot of critics about the uh, the biodiversity um, credit, and um, you know to some extent it. I mean everything goes over the critic and and. You know, it, and it shouldn't be any exception that there's a possibility for great, you know, great progress to be made. Um, but there is also, you know, there is also the case, just more cynically for a second, perhaps, that it's, you know, appeasing, it's appeasing developers and it's appeasing built environment stakeholders and professionals that, you know, already get things very much their own way anyway. You know, and it's bending over backwards and making making everything bend over backwards just to make their processes and practices easier. When if you know they just shifted their organisational culture, you know they they adopted a, you know perhaps a different perspective and operation, then you know it would, there wouldn't be the need the need for that. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I really I really hope it becomes something that's like a cornerstone of of all developments because I mean just looking from like an Edinburgh perspective, there's so many new homes. We, we had a green belt. I don't know what's happened to that, but 
every time I like leave the city now I'm seeing more and more homes like being built out it's just like these I hate to say it but kind of rank disgusting just like row on row of exactly the same house and it doesn't look like there's any difference to houses I've seen built years and years ago um in terms of yeah not just using grey infrastructure it's just a lot of grey infrastructure and there's not really much innovation I'm seeing here might be different between Scotland and England but yeah you, you think with the, the declaration of the climate crisis ecological crisis and I think the Scottish government have even signed up to some serious crisis form and they want to have carbon neutral by 2050 and all the rest of it you think that that would be trickling down to where it matters like the construction sector is something that's responsible for huge amounts of emissions and other uh, destructions of the environment um so it's a little bit disheartening when when you see actually how, how little it feels it's being done or it does feel like maybe uh, i can recognize what you're saying that it just appeases developers i mean maybe they can still just build great infrastructure and have some vines hanging down the side or i don't know is there there's there's elements where it is a bit of marketing and it could just be a gimmick in some cases uh, i don't know What's yeah i mean it, it, as the methodology develops you know i'm sure it will criticism aside it's a, it's a step forward you know bottom line it is it is it is progress it might not be it might not be extensive enough and it might not have come quick enough but it sure is progress and, and you know that's that's one of the main things um, that I think, you know, we, sh we, sh we should remember. And, you know, of course, we can still campaign for greater innovation and more swift action. And, mm. you know, of, co of course, we will do. But it is, it is definitely get getting any sort of statutory buy-in for these things is a major win because there is no real formal mandate that currently exists to have anything, you know, any statutory requirements. For any of these things, you know, there is the, there's no statutory requirement for local government to to upkeep their parks. And that's not a statutory requirement. So after you know what is 11 years of austerity, you know, budget shrinking by 30 percent on average, I believe it is across local local planning authorities in in England. You know, local authorities are saddled with the same responsibilities, maybe more civic responsibilities than they had before, mm. and less and less capacity. Yes. To undertake its, you know, undertake its roles and responsibilities for its communities and for its environments. So, putting these formal mandates in place is absolutely integral because it gives it that bite. You know, there's no getting around it. It will be a legal requirement. It is a form of legislation that's coming in. So, biodiversity net gain, environmental net gain, will be a major step in the right direction. You know, ir irrespective of the slight sort of discrepancies to do with you know the idea of making credits for things because you know that yeah like yeah that that definitely hasn't worked out that well for international carbon offsetting for sure um, but you know perhaps perhaps it will pave a new path a more progressive one so so you're feeling hopeful for the future of, of nature-based solutions and hopeful for our environment i mean you can speak from the british or the english perspective what what at what point or do you think there's going to be any clear wins, like major wins in the coming future? Do you think there's going to be a date that you can think like 2030, uh, I really see good things happening? Or what's the current rate of change? Well, this is the decade of delivery, isn't it? This is, this is make or break. You know, the next nine years as they are now are literally we stop the, you know, or try and mitigate the impact of the inevitable climate crisis and ecological collapse that we're seeing. 
or we or we fail to. So I think one has to remain optimistic with these things to remain a level of you know to remain sane really. Um, I I'm hopeful that things are getting better. You know the, the profile is 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 increasingly growing, and I think really what I'm what I'm realizing in as you know as I've diversified my own experiences and I've and I'm working in in and amongst different sectors is that there are there are major players um even in you know in the in the built environment um sector construction and building um uh organizations you know there, there is an immense amount of interest and intrigue genuine intrigue and you know and that is that to some extent that is, is that is being spurred on by this looming environment bill and these looming requirements for biodiversity and, and the environment that you know it, at least in a uk context are sort of making making these people think about it making these stakeholders think about it more so there is fantastic stuff happening um it's not happening perhaps uh, on a widespread scale enough but i am hopeful that it will continue to do so because you know every day more connections are being made and the network is expanding and the evidence base is always always growing you know the case for nbs is you know has has never been greater and there's you know projects that are still ongoing um across england um a hell of a lot of them eu funded still thankfully <laughs> uh <laughs> um ironically i suppose as well um yeah, yeah um that, that, that are still that are still funded and are still still undergoing and still have you know fantastic data to to identify and unearth and answers answers to give and um you know more solutions to to identify so i think you know even on my doorstep, there was um, there was a building that was given planning permission in just over the river in Salford, uh, but still really you know the, the the city region just up the road from me, in my, um, in, in Great Manchester, and they have just got permission for you know a massively clad green wall clad building. Mm. You know, and that the the organisation that's doing it, that's driving it, is an organisation called Make. And, you know, and they are doing that of their own volition. Yeah, but what it does is it looks beautiful. It, you know, it's by far the most you know, awe-inspiring building that will be either in Manchester or Salford city centre. So, you know, stakeholders are buying into it. They are, they are realising it. You know, I mean, it, the long thing has been that green has been a unique selling point for um, for developers for, you know, for, for years now, you know, I walk past any hoarding in the city centre and it's clad with green infrastructure, clad with nature-based solutions. And what comes to realisation, you know, it's, it's that disconnect again, that disconnect between, you know, the inception of a project and its actual delivery and its actual, you know, it's, it's long-term life cycle. I think, you know, there are major issues there that still are being worked towards and, and um, more answers to come. But yeah, I think, we have we have to remain hopeful. We have to remain hopeful that there there is a there is a gro- there is a growing um, there is growing momentum um, in this in this sector and that's getting they're getting behind the print you know and, the, and even if it's just the principles and not necessarily the explicit vernacular of these things the principles of these things and what and what they stand for and what they do um, yeah we're you know we're gonna we're gonna see we're gonna see things catch on but yeah it did make me think when you mentioned earlier about. Um, you know, housing providers in particular, major housing providers. And, you know, if we're building houses now that are going to stand for 100 years, then, you know, they have to be got right now. They have to be got right. <laughs> yeah. Because if they don't, 
what's going to happen? I mean, the cost of retrofit is like three times as expensive as incorporating into a new development. So, you know, what? Yeah, what what's it going to be? What's the point? What is the point in not doing it right the first time? Actually. It's really saddening to see, but I, I'm loving the energy and the passion that you've got for NBS and your wealth of information about all this stuff. I'm wondering if there's, are there any like sources or links or areas you would like to share with anyone listening in for following your work or following interesting organizations or yeah, just being up to date in the world of nature-based solutions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the organisation I'm currently working for, and this is a shameless plug, um, the organisation <laughs> I'm currently working for, the UK Green Building Council, is a, a, a rapidly growing uh, member organisation. It's part of an international consortium of green building councils. Um, we've currently got 535 members across the sort of construction sector, a lot of um, finance um, financiers as well, a really broad remit, actually, of... of um, of players in the built environment um we are doing fantastic things and we're driving innovation across a range of fronts whether it be advancing net zero um circular economy whole life whole life carbon um and you know the nature and biodiversity stuff that, that i'm working on so they're definitely ones to check out they have an, a wide range of resources all all open access all widely and freely available on their website um, across all the different work programs um and you know, and if there's anybody out there as a representative of an organisation, and you're not currently a member of the UKGBC, then obviously, obviously, please, please do get in touch because you know the more members that we have, the more the more capacity we have to drive our work programmes further. Um, I think really, you know, um, if anybody wants to find out more, the um, there are some you know there's fantastic stuff happening with the ignition project that I mentioned uh, that is based in. Greater Manchester. There's also a project called um, Urban Green Up, uh, which is um, based all around all around Europe. Actually, uh, one of the case study areas, which is in um, Liverpool. Um, there is also something which is a fantastic wealth of evidence um, and case studies, which is called the Naturevation Atlas. That's well worth checking out if you are ever at a uh, at an ask for. Um, for case study examples of these things in action uh, what, across a na- range nature of nature what atlas naturevation naturevation yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and that's got you know that's got thousands and thousands of case study examples best practice examples um of, of these things in action um there's also actually the network nature um uh, network which is uh, the latest sort of iteration of um it's almost like an, an aggregation of a, of a number of different knowledge sharing platforms, all NBS-focused. It's basically an online platform and a community where people can share their ideas, look at blogs, look up, look up research and sort of, you know, share examples and try and try and break down these barriers, you know, try and break down these sectoral silos that we're, that we're seeing and we're experiencing them. We, you know, we, we are still fighting to overcome. You know, bit by bit, we will succeed. Uh, but you know, there is, there is, there is still a long way to go. Um, that's it, yeah, that's it. amazing. Loads of great resources there. That's that's totally perfect. And yeah, I just wanted to, to say, to wanted to just say, massive thank you for coming on to SDG Talks. I'm not sure which SDG yet we've landed at. We can go with sustainable cities and communities slash industry innovation infrastructure. I think that's a good mix. 
Um, but really cool to hear all of this. And you you really articulate stuff in a in a very beautiful way. So I really really enjoyed listening to all that. Um, and I'm sure everyone else listening out will enjoy it too. Uh, but just wanted to say thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the STG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow STG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash and United Nations community. The goal of STG Talks is to bring you value. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on STG Talks.